You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. You want to turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 11. I'd like to announce where they're playing later on. Like, if you want to see more, go to, right? Yeah, I think that's a sign, you know. Romans chapter 11. We've made our way through Romans 1 through 10. And now we're embarking on Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 is one of those books. It's connected to to 9 through 11. Those are kind of a, a lump. Those are a section some people, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but some people think about that as kind of a, a parenthesis in the whole book. I don't like to, to see it that way, but certainly 9 through 11 are, are all connected because Paul is, is answering that one question, that one objection that he started with at the beginning of chapter 9. So the doctrine of election and, and reprobation and uh, our responsibility, all of those things that we've talked about through 9 and, and 10 uh, come to bear in, in, what, we, in what Paul is going to say in, in chapter 11 here. So uh, we need to, to think about that as, as we go on. But also, chapter 11 is one of those chapters that gets pointed to a lot in the book of Romans. Mostly, if you, if you look down to verses like, starting in verse 11, there it, it talks about the Gentiles will be engrafted in and what do all those things mean? And, and a lot of times what happens is, is people take these comments that Paul is making in Romans chapter 11, like all Israel will be saved, and they, they just pull it away from the context of the entire book of Romans and specifically what's going on in, verse, in chapters 9 through 11. So we need to be very careful that we're connecting these comments with what comes before it in Paul's overall argument. Because a, a lot of people have have made this to say something that it really doesn't say at all. And we want to we want to see the truth here. So those things are coming. We're going to deal with Romans chapter 11 and verse 1 this morning. You'll see why, I think. Let's just stand together as we as we honor the reading of scripture together. I ask then, see the then connects it with what has gone before, right? He's not asking a new question. He's asking a question based on what's come before. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. We're going to stop there. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we pray that that you would be with us, that you would guide us, that you would send your your spirit to work in an amazing way this morning, that our eyes would be open, you would help us to to see the the truth and the beauty of the gospel, even what was read this morning and and sung. Lord, I pray that in this text, your spirit would, would work in such a way that those things would even become more clear, that the gospel would just be prominent, that it would point to the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do that this morning through the proclamation of your word. 
exalt him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're, we're starting a new chapter. We've spent a lot of time in chapter 10. But once again, we are reminded here that the ancient Bibles didn't have the, the chapter verse divisions like we do. We, we've took the book of Romans and still have everything that Paul really needed to say. I don't think that's okay. I wouldn't be in favor of calling these chapters a parenthesis. Number of reasons. For one, there's a number of chapters in the middle of a book. It's strange for a parenthesis. Secondly, Paul doesn't suggest here that we ought to do that. Third, uh, there are translation issues uh, some places. If you notice in your Bible, I don't have examples, but if you notice some places, there are small portions like words or something that the translation, the translators choose to put in parentheses. But for something to be put in parentheses, that would be a, a translation issue. That would be a, an issue for people who are far more capable uh, than I am and most of us are. In other words, uh, I don't really have an issue if a group of translators decide to use parentheses in a certain certain section to make the, the meaning clear, but to put several chapters in that category would really send the wrong message. And they would say, well, this isn't really needed. So even, even to suggest, uh, when we're talking about this portion of Scripture, to suggest that it's a, a, a parenthesis in some form, I think, is a, is a mistake. I would suggest and we've made this case before, that the, the chapters here are very important because they, they bring up a logical objection that one might have to what Paul has been laying out. And specifically in chapter 8, where we're told that, that nothing will separate you from the love of God. Absolutely nothing in all of creation will separate you from the love of God. And the obvious place then for a critic to go after that is, what about Israel? How can you say, Paul, that nothing will separate us from the love of God when Israel, your chosen people, who you chose, have by and large rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does this mean that God's word has failed then? Because you said it certainly looks like God has rejected his people. It certainly looks like God's word has failed. That God said he would bless his people. That God said that the Jews would be saved. God made all of these promises, but now they're rejecting the Messiah. So chapters 9 through 11 is a large portion, but Paul thinks that this is very critical that he deals with this objection. So 9 through 11 do fit together because Paul is taking up this, this objection. And if you remember, we said that Paul really used seven different arguments throughout these three chapters to handle the overall objection. Did God's word fail? Has God rejected his people? And he, and he basically breaks this down into seven different arguments. I'm getting this from James Boyce. I think it's very helpful. 
And I, and I think it's helpful just us to go back and, and briefly look at, at where we've been concerning these arguments and then uh, where we're going to go as well and just to kind of see Paul's overall line of thinking in these chapters. So first, in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 24, Paul teaches that God's purpose toward the Jewish nation has not failed. His word has not failed because all whom God has elected to salvation are or will be saved. That, that's his point there. We spent a lot of time talking about the doctrine of election. And that's Paul's point. Not just to teach the doctrine of election for election's sake, but to point out God's word has not failed because everyone God has elected to salvation will or has been or will come to faith. And now this section of, now in, in this portion of scripture, these verses, uh, verses 6 through 24 in Romans 9, there's an important distinction that needs to be made, and that is between, that Paul makes, and that is between national Israel and spiritual Israel. So on one hand, you have the people who are from the natural people group, and on the other hand, you have those who are chosen to know Christ and come to him through faith. The point in this section was extremely important, and that is that the existence of nat- the existence of natural Israel did not guarantee citizenship into spiritual Israel. In other words, just because one was a physical Jew, this did not guarantee that they would be saved. Salvation is not based on your natural heritage; it's based on God's purpose in election. That's how Paul words it. Secondly, we learn that God's historical purpose toward the Jewish nation has not failed because God has already shown or revealed that not all Israel would be saved and that some of the Gentiles would be. We see this in Romans chapter 9, verses 25 through 29. Spiritual Israel, then, is made up not of only believing Jews, but also believing Gentiles that God has chosen to bring to salvation through faith. Starting to make a little bit of sense. Third, God's purpose toward the Jewish nation has not failed because the failure of the Jews to believe was their own fault. That is Romans 9.30 through chapter 10, verse 21. So that's the section we just finished. So all of chapter 10 deals with this, yes, God, God's election is, is real, but so is human responsibility. You are responsible for your actions. God is holding out his hands all day long to a, a rebellious people. It's not God's fault. He's the one wanting you to come. He's the one inviting you. Israel didn't believe it was their own fault. Fourth, out of seven, this is where we're at now, and this line of reasoning is found in just in one verse, chapter 11, verse 1. That's why we're dealing with this a single verse this morning. And that is that God's word has not failed because some Jews, Paul was an example of this, have believed and been saved. As long is there are Jewish people being saved, even one, 
no one could really say that God had totally rejected his people. Has God rejected his people? No, Paul says. I was saved. That's, it's a pretty simple argument, but it's a good one. The fact is, God is always, he has always preserved a, a considerable remnant of believing Jewish people. So has God's word failed? Absolutely not. Why? Because Jewish people are being saved all the time. Not all of them. A small number of them compared to the, the whole lot. But still, there's some being saved. So God has not rejected his people. So this is where we're at today. Let me just highlight then where we're going to go next throughout the, the chapter. So five. God's historical purpose toward the Jewish nation has not failed because it has always been the case that even in the worst of times, God has saved a remnant of people. In the most rebellious times, in the worst of times, God has always drawn people to himself. See that in verses 2 through 10. And then in 6... God's word concerning Israel has not failed because the salvation of the Gentiles that is occurring is meant to arouse Israel to envy and thus be used as a means in saving some of them. We've already seen this a little bit back in chapter 10 in Paul's quotations from Isaiah. But God's word has not failed because the salvation of the Jews is meant to arouse them, make them jealous so that they too would come to faith. We see that in verses 11 through 24. And then finally, at seven, God's historical purpose toward the Jewish nation has not failed because in the end, he says, all Israel will be saved. In other words, God will fulfill his promise. And we see this as verses 25 through 32. And of course, we'll get into that in due time and, and understand exactly what that means. Leon Morris, uh, a, a wonderful commentator, he traces Paul's thought and summarizes Paul's thought here in these chapters. He says it this way. He says, Paul has made it clear that God is working out a great purpose and has insisted on divine predestination and election. The will of God is done. He also insisted that human responsibility is real and important. And he has made it plain that this must be borne in mind when considering the fact that Israel has not entered the blessing as Gentile believers have. What then does it matter to belong to a chosen people? This is Leon Morris. At first sight, it may not seem like very much, for Gentiles may be saved as well as the Jews. But it is far, as, far from Paul's thought that, believe, that a believing Jew matters little. He goes on to show that well that in the providence of God, Israel's sin and unbelief have been used to open up the way of the Gentiles to salvation. It will also lead to conversion of Jews. The Jews still have a place in God's plan. End quote. So hopefully by the end of Romans chapter 11, we'll have a, a pretty good grasp on what Morris says here, and more specifically, how Paul can say that all Israel will be saved when he has made it very clear that all national Israel will not be saved. Um, they have not been. I mean, that's the whole objection so far. It was why are not, why are they rejecting? 
For now, we find ourselves in Paul's uh, fourth argument, in his seven-part argument, that God's word has not failed. And this is Paul asking the question as plain again as he possibly can. Did God reject his people? And his answer is, by no means, absolutely not. How can one say that? How can Paul say that so emphatically? He gives the reason in verse 1 that he himself a Jew, he is from the line of Abraham, he is from the tribe of Benjamin, he's a, a national Jew, and he has been saved by God. God has not turned his back, God has not rejected him, but God saved him. I heard a, a story once about a bar mitzvah celebration and the male members of the family during that service were to take part in the, the program and they were going to do some, some readings from the, the Torah or the, the law. And at this point, the, the rabbi asked the, the men to step forward to do some of these readings and there was a, a Christian Jew along with them, a, a Jew in the family that had been converted uh, to Christ and he stepped forward too to, to be a part of this and to do the readings. But the, the rabbi stopped him and said, uh, you, can't, you can't step forward because you're no longer a Jew. You're, you're not a Jew because you believed in, in Jesus. And of course, the, the man protested and pointed uh, over there and said, that is my parents. The fact is, they are both Jews. That means I'm a Jew. Since God ordained that both of his parents were Jews, and therefore, he therefore is a descendant of Abraham as well, he said, I, I'm a Jew. I would guess that Paul, or that Paul heard similar things after his conversion, that people would attack his true Jewishness because of his conversion. So as Paul makes his point here, that God has not rejected his people because he saved me, he also has to make the case that he is, in fact, a real Jew. And he draws attention to the fact that God has not rejected him. And he points out his, he's a descendant of Abraham. He's, therefore, a Jew. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. So let's, just, let's look briefly here how Paul describes himself and then point to a few implications that there is for us in this text. First of all, Paul describes himself as an Israelite. Notice that in the, the text. Do, do you see that, that for myself, and, and I am an Israelite. Now, there are, there are three different names used to describe the Jewish people in the Bible. Israelites, Jews, and Hebrews. The origin of the term Hebrews uh, isn't really known. There are some theories on that. The term Jew, though, comes from Judah, who is the fourth son of Jacob, whose mother was Leah, the most prominent of all the tribes of Israel. The word Jew then stresses the, the ethnic origins of the person. So, where the word Hebrew is most likely more of a, a broad word to describe a people group, the word Jew is narrow in that sense. If one is a Jew, they're being associated with the tribes of Israel. 
their specific group of people. You have these specific ethnic origins. The label or name Israel then is God's people's covenant name. It was the name given to Jacob when he wrestled with the angel at Jabok and God blessed him in Genesis chapter 32. Now thinking about this, that Israel points to God's covenant, we see that Paul's choice of words here is really important. Just a brief word about covenant. The word covenant is an agreement between two parties. It's a pretty simple word in some respects. It's extremely important. But Paul's choice of words here is important because the entire discussion in these chapters has to do with whether or not God has broken his covenant with these people or not. And here God is saying absolutely not. Paul, in essence then, is saying he is part of this group that God has made a covenant with, an agreement with, and God has not broken his covenant. He's not rejected his people. Paul is part of that group. Second, notice that Paul describes himself here as a, as a descendant of Abraham. One, of the, one commentator said that nothing designates a Jew more decisively than being called a descendant of Abraham. It's interesting that the unbelieving Jews would have put a lot of stock in this. For a lot of them, there's, there's a connection here with being a descendant of Abraham and the grounds of their salvation. But Paul has also previously given this a, a Christian importance. If we go back to, to chapter 4 and talking about how Abraham is an example of faith. That he was counted righteous before God by his faith in the promise of God. So when Paul says that he is a descendant of Abraham, he is saying, in essence, yes, I am a physical descendant of Abraham, but also I am a descendant in that I am a true child of Abraham by faith, not by natural lineage. Leads to a third category. how Paul describes himself, and that is that he is from the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was important for at least three reasons. I mean, one might read this and just skip over it and think that Paul was just bringing up the tribe of Benjamin because it was equal with the other tribes. It was one of the ten, and he's just specifically pointing out which tribe he's from. The tribe of Benjamin wasn't equal with the other tribes. Benjamin was important. It was bragging rights to be from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was, was small compared to the other tribes, but it was very important. It was the only, Benjamin was the only son of Jacob that was born in Israel. The other sons of Jacob were born on the far side of the desert. Bragging rights. Secondly, Jerusalem, right, Israel's capital, was in the, within the borders of Benjamin. The home of, of Jerusalem was a, a claim to notoriety. So, again, 
bragging rights. Third, the tribe of Benjamin was the only tribe that stood with Judah when the north and the south split after Solomon. The north drifted away from God much faster than the south, if you know your history there. So Judah and Benjamin preserved longer and were seen as more righteous than the others. Again, bragging rights. Now, even though they too were taken into captivity by Babylon in 586 B.C., to say that that one was from the tribe of Benjamin was to say they were a little bit more spiritual, a little bit more righteous than those from the other tribes. To say you were from the tribe of Benjamin was bragging rights. God had blessed them more than the rest of Israel. I mean, you can see how one might think this, couldn't you? Of course, Paul isn't touting his, his spiritual Lineage, since he's in the, in the middle of an argument that God's purpose is based on election, not natural descent, and that spiritual Israel is Abraham's descendants by faith. But, but I just want you to notice something here, and that is when someone would brag about being from the tribe of Benjamin, and they were saying that they were a little bit, little bit more spiritual than the rest. They had a little more clout. We must remember that even though that might be true, they might be better, but Benjamin was not immune from God's judgment, were they? Just as anyone that brags or puts any stock in their own Righteousness in any way, shape, or form, they will, in the end, be put to shame. It doesn't matter who you are. Righteousness comes only through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it isn't our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ himself applied to us. We recognize that no matter what we have going for us, no matter how great a lineage, no matter how great a family, no matter how great the opportunities that you have, the money that you enjoy, the school that you go to, no matter how many things that you have going for you that you just take for granted, that even on our best day, even those who who brag about the fact that, that we are morally good people, we don't get in trouble. We get speeding tickets. We, our teachers are always happy with us. They, lo- they love us. That, that even on our best day, our own righteous deeds cannot earn us any merit before I mean, grasp this. This is, this is gospel truth 101. If God is going to be pleased with you, it's not going to be because of something that you can conjure up within yourself. That's what I'm saying. 
Isn't, isn't that something? How then will God ever be pleased with me? If God is ever, if God is ever going to be pleased with us, his wrath against our sin must be satisfied in another. In other words, Jesus purchased our freedom in that he stepped in, paid the debt of sin that you and I were obligated to pay. The wrath that he had, the wrath that we had stored up because of our sin was laid on him and through faith, his Righteous standing, his ability to please God, to merit approval before God is granted to us. Our sin is laid on him, his righteousness laid on us. So through faith, his righteous standing before God becomes ours. So in faith, God is pleased with you. Faith, God is pleased with me as he is his own son. This is what it means to be in Christ. Phrase you see in the New Testament all and over and over. In Christ. That we are accepted by God, not on a a partial probationary status, but fully in Christ. I think the debate about eternal security, all I don't care for that terminology, is really solved in that one phrase, in Christ. Because either you are truly in Christ or you are not. Because if you are in Christ, then your salvation and your relationship with God not rest, does not rest on you and your merit. It rests solely on what Jesus Christ has done for you. So, what are some implications here? First, we should not be discouraged in our evangelism efforts because all that God is calling to faith in Christ Jesus will come to him. We've talked about this several times. We need to be reminded of the truth. It's easy to get discouraged when we get the nerve up to finally share the gospel with somebody and they reject us. Anybody ever had that happen? It's a little harder than the next time to shake yourself off, to go to them or go to somebody else and do it again. But we're called to do that. We're called to be faithful. We're called to share the gospel with our friends, our loved ones, because we realize hell is the alternative. We're called by God to share the good news. The results of that are up to God. We also realize that in God's sovereignty, that he uses means to accomplish his decree. So so not only will those who God ordained to come to faith come to faith, but they will come to faith because they were told, because somebody cared enough about them and loved them enough to share the gospel with them. If you have a friend that is lost, 
that doesn't know Jesus, and you say, I'm going to love them into the kingdom, and you're not sharing the gospel with them, I would question whether or not you really love them. God uses means to accomplish his purpose. And his means, this is chapter 10 all the way through, how are they going to hear without somebody preaching to them? They will not. God uses means. Good theology never uses the sovereignty of God as an excuse not to be obedient in this area. Simple. Secondly, so, First, we should have confidence. Second, another implication of this text is that we should be warned against presuppositions, presumptions of we have. We presume things about people. The grace of God transcends all racial, socioeconomic classes. It transcends denominations. For instance, just because someone was from the nation of Israel, it didn't mean they were saved. But Gentiles who had worshipped foreign gods, they were saved and therefore began to worship the one true God. And of course, being a member of a certain church or a certain denomination isn't going to save you. Of course, belonging to a good church is a good thing. Should not be underestimated. Going to church, being part of a church community is essential, it's necessary. But it's not what in the end saves one. But if if those things are what one's hope is in, then their trust is in the wrong thing. Christian Jews looked at Gentiles and and wondered about them often. Could they really be saved? And if they're saved, what must they have to do to be saved? I mean, do they have to do certain things? Do they have to obey certain laws? Do they have to do... I mean, Acts chapter 15 is all about this, right? This, This question. The, the Jewish believers are, are asking. They're, they're approaching these, these other people and they're, and they're saying, um, they're presuming things. Like, yeah, you're a Gentile, so, I mean, you would have to do some extra steps, right? You're a Gentile, so you, you don't get saved like we get saved. And here you have the testimony from the apostles that are saying, wait a minute, we're going out and we're just sharing the gospel with everybody. And Jews, Gentiles, it doesn't matter. They're all coming to faith the same. And it's evidenced by them speaking in tongues and and all this manifestation of the Spirit that was taking place in that moment. We need to be careful with making presuppositions, um, presuming things about people. Third, Third implication, and that is that all of our confidence should be placed in God alone because God alone is the, the source the, the effector, the, the accomplisher, the sustainer of our salvation. Think about this for a moment. The, the source of your salvation is not in yourself. It is in God alone. God is the source of salvation. Salvation comes from God. We're going to sing that in, in a moment. It is God himself who came up with the idea of salvation before eternity ever began. 
It was his plan, not our plan. But not only is God the source of our salvation, but he's the one who brings it about. He makes it happen. The only way God's salvation can be accomplished is through his power. But even further, the only way that salvation is sustained, meaning that what God started in salvation, he is going to bring it to completion by his power. So many times people put their confidence in other things. Religious heritage, education, good works, giving history, generosity, even their good intentions. Whatever it is, we must remember that our confidence in sharing our faith, living the Christian life, comes from God alone. Fourth, a fourth implication here, and it really goes without saying, but it needs to be said. So often when we talk about the Jews, and I'm thinking in my mind back to our last message in the book of Romans here, when we contrasted God, who has his loving arms out, ready to embrace and embrace all of those who, who come to him, whose love is, is continuous, it's compassionate, it's costly. If that is contrasted with the people of Israel who were not only disobedient, but they were hostile and obstinate in their disbelief. They killed the prophets. They killed Jesus. And after Jesus' resurrection, they tried to rid the world of the Christian faith. How much more obstinate can you be? They didn't just turn their backs on God. They, they spit on him and tried to erase him from history. It is easy for us to look how the Jews rejected the Messiah, how they treated Jesus and those who followed him, and then for us to take up some sort of anti-Semitic attitude ourselves. The fact is, the text is clear. Has God rejected his people? No. If God hasn't rejected his people, then we should not either. No means. If God hasn't written them off, we shouldn't write them off. Just as we shouldn't write anybody off. The fact is, all Israel is made up of both elect Gentiles and Jews, and they will be saved. True Israel are those who are children of God by faith, not by natural heritage. And this includes some from the physical nation of Israel, like Paul. The Christian church over the centuries has made a lot of mistakes, a lot of blemishes. Some of them, the most terrible, have been involved when the, the persecution and hatred of the Jews. Christians should act like Christians. And you know what I mean by that, right? That when a Christian is to act like a Christian, it doesn't mean that we just follow certain rules, certain laws, sort of perhaps, but it mostly means that forgiven people forgive. The more Christians understand and learn to rely on the gospel, the more it'll impact how they love and treat the other people around them. It's the point of the reading we started our service with. The gratitude for what Christ has done in your life shapes your feelings and attitudes toward others. Christians love like God loves us in Christ. And if you go back to the verse previous of this, notice the picture of how God loves us in Christ. His arms are wide open, ready to embrace all those that come to his. Tremendous compassion, continuous compassion, a costly love. 
where he bore sin's penalty on our behalf. An act that was very costly. It costed him life, his life. And our response then is to place our faith and trust in him. That's our only hope. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.